0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the one measure we all use is time. Whether it's a 40 hour work week or the potential of 4,000 weeks in the average life, we struggle to manage it and are desperate to learn how best to enjoy it. Instead of time just being the medium in which your life unfolds,
1: we today think about time as something that sort of runs alongside our lives. We have to keep up with it, or we are guilty of not using it as well as we could and then it's gone. So, what's the solution? It's a really a matter of a different approach to time, making potentially uncomfortable decisions about what to do with your time in the direction of the things that you care about. Reminding yourself that there will always be too much to do and therefore trying to get it all
0: done is an unwise investment of your time and energy. A sensible guide to time and getting done what really counts with Oliver Berkman. That's coming up on Life Examined. How are you managing your time today? Are you working or doing chores? perhaps looking forward to seeing friends, working out, or just curling up on the couch to watch something or listen to a podcast. Time is arguably our most valuable commodity. We feel guilty if we don't use it wisely, and yet struggle to recognize its best use. Historically, the seasons, sun, and moon measured our use of time. Clocks and timekeeping changed all that, ushering in the era of the modern 40-hour work week. And while today the idea of doing nothing feels luxurious, most of us are caught up in that busy, crazy lifestyle in which we're both overscheduled and overworked. Let's face it, time is the one thing we'd all like more of. In his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, author Oliver Berkman ponders our relationship with time and how to make the most of this valuable resource. And depressing as it may sound, Berkman says we don't actually have that much of it. On average, about 4,000 weeks in an entire life. Oliver Berkman, welcome to Life Examine. Great to have you. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be here. You know, one of the things that I I, I certainly felt, and I know a lot of people have too, is just how stark four thousand weeks really is. Just that this how how diminutive and small and depressing it is. Did did <laughs> you, like I've got to be two thousand weeks through my life already at this point? Did that number also kind of grab your attention? It sounded like it did in the book.
1: Yes, it totally did. I mean, I think there's something um it's not my goal obviously to uh only alarm and depress uh-huh. readers that's not a, that's not a commercially wise strategy maybe for a book but um but I think it is so sort of arresting at the beginning just because you know you could express the average human lifespan in days and then you would have a very large number um and so it doesn't seem to matter that it's quite easy to sort of lose a day and not know where the day went. Yeah. You could express it in years you don't get very many but they feel quite substantial. I think the strange thing about weeks to me is they they don't feel very substantial and you also don't get very many mm-hmm. of them. So mm-hmm. it's sort of the worst of both worlds.
0: That's right. And they they do though kind of provide a a format to our life though, don't they? They're they're kind of how we how we navigate a sense of time I think in the modern day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They're sort of really deeply um uh, conditioned into our minds, even though I think it's it's right to say that they're the um, they're the only sort of major unit of time that doesn't really have any relationship to um, you know the movement of the planet or the the, the- seasons or anything else like that it's just a it's just a human human
0: invention right so i mean talk to me a little bit about the the background to this book and particularly this idea of time management which on one level i feel is almost very corporatized the way we use that phrase now or you know how we're trying to live in this era of constant efficiencies so so kind of go go back a little bit when you were formulating some of these ideas why why the idea of management of time being so important
1: yeah, I mean, there's one layer to this, which is the kind of why was I so uh, compelled by this, which is a kind of a question for me and my therapist, but you can play that role if you want to. <laughs> we can talk about it. I think it's also just generally, um, I, I, I liked the the idea of taking this kind of seemingly very narrow notion. But when you stop and think about it, like, why is it narrow? Like, life is a question of time management in mm. in some sense. Um and yet, yes, this genre in general tends to be taken to be a very sort of narrow thing, very fixated on efficiency, totally focused on work and kind of shunned by people who think of themselves as a bit more sophisticated or something. But like, what what is more important than than managing or at least apportioning our time, the time that we get in, in a in a meaningful way. Mm.
0: And and the good news is that I actually am a therapist. So why don't we sit on the couch yeah. together and, yes. you know, and, and you can tell me what was happening <laughs> and then pay me later. No, but, but I am, I am actually curious, like what personally you must've been, you must've been affected by this.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, I think everybody uh, in one way or another has some sort of issue that drives what they're interested in. I don't think anybody writes books certainly without, um, uh, you know struggling with the topic people people write about the things that they that they struggle with, and for me, it was really just this dawning realization that I had spent a large proportion of my early uh, my sort of young adulthood and and before that, I think trying to get to a point where I felt like I was in control of my time, mm. in control of my to-do lists, able to deal with whatever might be thrown at me, never having to let anybody down or disappoint anybody. And yeah, all sorts of reasons why one might have that uh, th- that motivation. I think it's a pretty widespread one. And I guess what was different for me was that it led me into this process of experimentation. I wrote this column for years for The Guardian, where one of the things that I got to do was to experiment with a hundred different time management and productivity techniques. Most people who have sort of, you know, um, more jobs that make a bigger difference to the world than that mm. don't get the chance to try out uh, quite that many uh, techniques. And when you do that and none of them bring you this feeling of being finally in command and having everything in working order, you, you know, you, you finally, or I finally began to wonder if I was you know, asking the wrong question. And if there was something amiss mm. with this whole sort of project of trying to,
0: you know, master, dominate time. Right. Do you feel that the, even the, the idea of time management is almost like a modern luxury? It, it, it's a product of being, you know, in this, in this industrial capitalistic era where we're not having to go out and forage for food every day. I mean, was this a concern to people a thousand years ago? By and large, I think the answer to that is
1: no. Whether it's a luxury is a very um, fraught question, I Mm. think. But certainly in the pre-industrial world, most people, um, yeah, I think it's right to say, did not have this kind of concept of time such that they had a relationship to their daily time or to the time uh, that they could use well or use badly. This whole notion of time as a resource, it's a kind of an alienation in a way it's right it's like instead of time just being the medium in which your life unfolds we today think about time as something that sort of runs alongside our lives we have to keep up with it or we are guilty of not using it as well as we could and then it's gone if you were a medieval peasant say in Mm. england uh, i think that. The rhythms of your day would just have emerged from what you had to do and from the natural world, right? You milk the cows when it's time to milk the cows. You don't have a productivity guru whispering in your ear saying, you know, if we could just like batch all the milking of the cows for the year and do it all in two weeks, then then that would be much more efficient. And then we could move on to other things. No, you're just, you're yoked, um, mm. you know, just to the to the rhythms of of nature in that way. And although... I'm always at pains to say when I'm talking about this part of the book. Obviously, the life of a medieval peasant in England was overwhelmingly terrible. I think in one respect, it would have been free of a problem that that, that haunts many of us today, which is this sense of being hounded by time or struggling against time or trying to win a battle with time. I don't think any of those issues would would have arisen. Uh, Mm. for that kind of person.
0: Well, a lot of people talk about the agrarian revolution as maybe the beginning of having free time, right? The sense that, okay, the grain Mm. is finally stored for the remainder of the season, and there's downtime. And we see, you know, in evolutionary history, the beginning of more advanced forms of writing, maybe even spirituality or religion. I mean, could we go that far back and say that... There were some some kind of pinpoints in the history that show the beginning of time as a resource. I think that's right. There's a whole lot of um, you know
1: not fully uh, agreed upon by everybody, but there's a whole uh, there's a whole argument in um, in uh, Lewis Mumford's famous book *Technics and Civilization* about uh, the first um, mechanical clocks emerging in European monasteries, oh. where hmm. monks needed a way to coordinate the hours the monastic hours of course the first thing that happens when that free time is made available is that it's sort of radically unevenly distributed so it's not that you actually have a lot of free time if you're the one of the people who's actually farming the the land but yes societally speaking we we move to this situation where people can start to ask questions about what they might do with their time and then i think absolutely in the Run up to, and then the actual experience of the Industrial Revolution. There is a whole new change, a whole process of the commodification of time, of um, people selling their time instead of working in a for sort of a piecework way. Shifts in factories and mills that needed to be coordinated, all sorts of things, and then you get this notion developing that uh, free time, if if it's if it's given at all, you know, is something that. Is necessary in order to allow people to recuperate, to do more work, which is, you know, certainly not what Aristotle meant, say, when he talked about leisure as the mm. the highest good. For humanity.
0: Well, it seems that there's a lot of arguments that go in different directions when we talk about this idea of free or vacant time. I mean, even just these, these kind of common sayings, you know, like an idle mind is the devil's playground, or in the case of Aristotle, leisure time maybe is, is the the peak of, you know, the human experience. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think there has maybe always been some debate as to what free time even really means,
1: yeah absolutely right and you get you you get as you say the idea that that at least for the people in a stratified society who are fortunate enough to be granted it that that leisure is kind of the highest goal because it's the it's the only thing Aristotle argued that we do for itself all the other virtues military honor and excellence in politics, even if they 're really great they're really great for something. Leisure is for itself mm. now he did think that leisure was um you know doing philosophy all day and it was uh, a radically constrained slice of society who was uh, who was in a position or allowed to do it but but that's a kind of important idea because if you contrast that then with yes all these moralized ideas that emerge later on about how uh, it's dangerous to allow the working classes to have leisure time because right. what might they do with it? And then there's a sort of pushback against that, which leads to the development of the weekend and the the limited working day, which definitely takes as its argument the idea that, no, people, ordinary people need time to educate themselves and to, um, you know, do all sorts of edifying activities that are going to make them better members of society, which is fine so far as it goes. But of course, then it sort of eliminates any valorization of just resting, just like Mm. not having an agenda. And I think you see that today for everybody, really, in this idea that, you know, you're not really using your leisure time well, unless unless you've got fitness goals that you're training for, or unless you have a, a hobby that you're trying to turn into a side hustle and make some money out of right the idea that just you could just be doing doing nothing is um is
0: and that that might be valuable is still kind of anathema to us oh, absolutely and it makes me wonder, were there any writers or moments in history that really caught your attention in terms of thinking about I don't know like the, the importance of a weekend or the importance of of open time? I mean that seems almost humanist in a way to me, but i like where where do you see kind of some really important um, changing aspects of that conversation happening?
1: Well, one thing that really was amazing to me when I was researching that part of this uh, of this topic was. The way in which I'm sort of uh, elaborating what I just said, but the way in which um the argument made for the weekend of for workers' rights was made in this basis on this basis that they were going to use their time well mm. and there's a there's a survey I think it is or some sort of research um, among mill workers in Massachusetts, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, asking people like what they actually wanted to do with their with their time off and what they plan to do with it what they would value and there's one answer in that which just really stayed with me which is somebody saying that what they what they really wanted um some free time for was quote to look around and see what is going on close quote and there's something kind of heartbreaking about that right because it's just like oh yes maybe the point of life is to is to be here um now of course you know better that the weekend and and the limited working day was one on a sort of moralized basis than than not one at all but I think we do really forget that there is some some value in in just being there's a lovely um line from Simone de Beauvoir I won't be able to quote it verbatim but where she says that if the meaning and the value of an old man drinking wine in the sun or something like that has no value if your society can't find a way to value that then everything we're doing here is is for nothing you know
0: yeah yeah no i i appreciate that one of my favorite lines comes from the american zen teacher alan watts who would always write that the meaning of life is to just be alive right Mm. so simply like the ability to experience to be open to the world and in a sense i i felt that quote from the mill worker kind of being expressed in that idea of alan watts that I think at this point we, we think that to, to be fully awake is to have time to notice or to think or to reflect, right? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And it's a very, as the connection to Alan Watts
1: makes clear, it's a very deeply sort of spiritual idea. The fact that um, it wouldn't have been thought of that way probably by the, by the mill worker from Massachusetts quoted there doesn't change the fact that it's in some sense the sort of highest goal of, um, of many religious and, and wisdom traditions to, to actually have the presence of mind or the discipline or whatever it is to, to be able to just rest in life as it is, rather than always be looking towards future fulfillment.
0: Yeah. So talk to me then about your experimentation with ideas surrounding time or theories you wanted to look at or ways that, you know, you wanted to adjust your life. Can you, can you bring us through a few of the ones you found, you know, particularly interesting for better or worse? So I tried
1: all sorts of uh, productivity and time management techniques. I guess I never really fully believed in things like the seven habits of highly effective people, but I definitely experimented with things like the the Pomodoro technique, which is a pretty popular uh, approach to work that involves dividing your day into 25-minute chunks interspersed with five-minute breaks. Um, There's a book called Getting Things Done, by a writer called David Allen, which really made a very big difference to the conversation about productivity at the beginning of the 21st century, which is all about uh, keeping sort of exhaustive accounts of everything that is in your head on paper mm-hmm. or in a digital system so that your mind is freed up to, to, to work on on things instead of keep track of them. You know, many, many others. But what I see in hindsight, I was doing, and I think a lot of people come to these techniques with this sort of secret ulterior motivation was you know i was i was expecting these to to get me to a place where i didn't have to suffer from the consequences of being a finite human basically right where i could where i could do absolutely everything that anyone demanded where there was no limit to the number of you know Articles my editor might want from me, I was working in a newspaper at the time, or emails I could receive or obligations I felt from family or friends. I could just, I would have the system to let them all be done uh, and never have to fail at any of them. And, you know, if you read in detail some of these productivity gurus' words, the best ones anyway, including uh, the ones I've mentioned, they don't make that claim. They don't say Mm -hmm. you can do everything. They say sometimes the exact opposite, right? This is about staying calm and with some peace of mind in a situation where you obviously can't do everything. But I think that is the really hard thing for certainly a certain kind of personality to accept, right? That there will always be too much to do, that you can't use efficiency to solve that problem because we live in a world of infinite inputs, basically, of, of stuff that we could do. And so if you get better at moving through that supply faster, you don't get to the end of it because mm. it's infinite. Um And that in the end, you really do just have to confront the fact that you can only choose some of the things that matter and you won't be able to do all of the things that matter or that feel like they matter. And that's painful. And I think the sort of worst productivity and time management self-help advice basically just enables us in our efforts to avoid that right it comes it sort of holds out these promises of uh well with this system you won't ever have to face the fact that in fact you know it's either the career that burns with a passion inside you or it's pleasing your parents you know Mm. it's it's either uh nurturing three or four really important friendships and being willing to not nurture a whole lot of other much less important ones, or it's just spreading yourself too thinly over them, right? You have to make these choices
0: uh, and there's no way around it. Yeah, and I want to come back to, I think, some of these really bigger philosophical questions, but just out of pure curiosity, were there any personal stories or anecdotes you would share about one of these techniques that you tried to just play around with a little bit?
1: One of the things that I... Definitely, found myself doing was v- trying to sort of very tightly schedule my day, right? Yeah. So I would I would follow this advice to give every minute or every hour a, a job. I would have these kind of uh, very dense kind of schemes drawn up in my in my calendar, and I would discover, you know, firstly, this horrifying truth that everything takes longer than you expect it to take and and something <laughs> yeah. called Hofstadter's law named after the computer scientist philosopher Douglas Hofstadter which says that everything takes longer than you expect it to take even when you take into account the fact that everything takes That's longer funny. than you expect it to take so like, yeah. there's no escape from from that
0: as somebody and remodeling like it, a house let me just tell you that is very true <laughs> I have never done anything at the time it was supposed to take or the amount of money it was supposed to take. Sorry. You can, you
1: <laughs> no, no, it's exactly absolutely I can, I can I can yes. well imagine. And 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 I would always find that one of two things happened, which was like either my system for the day didn't work, and I would feel overwhelmed. I would feel like I was a failure because I'd set up this definition of success. That was effectively a, a high wire act, right? A tightrope walk. You had to get everything had to go right. Yeah. Otherwise I was failure I was on the back foot and then sometimes it just would work and I would stick to it mm. and then I would feel oppressed by this this sort of time jail that I had imposed on my life and and that was really illuminating to me because it made me realize that we really rebel against you know people telling us what to do with our time even when the person telling us is ourselves um you know even when the taskmaster is your internal voice um it's it's a bad way to to get things done and certainly a bad way to enjoy life because you're constantly screaming at yourself to do more and then
0: um you know you 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 hate that guy who keeps screaming at you to do more so you so you refuse <laughs> mm. well to me this argument though could split into two different directions. And I'm curious how you'd make sense of it. On one hand, I can imagine that building in these, you know, kind of intricate calendar systems and to-do lists and the fragmentation of time into productivity could have two results. One is that you do get more stuff done. And then as a result, instead of just stopping, you just keep going because there's always a million more things to do, right? Or Mm -hmm. the idea being that, okay, you got four things done, and now you're opening up time for something you love or care about, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it seems to me that the second option would be the one that we're trying to get to more than the first, but maybe the first is where most of us just end up.
1: Right. Well, I think part of that, this this relates to this idea that I call, I think other people call too, right, clearing the decks, the idea that what you're going to do is get some things out of the way so that you can focus on some really important things. And... It doesn't happen because the decks are never clear because mm. um, you know work expands to fill the time available for its completion, as Parkinson's law uh, reminds us. And I think you know what this is making me think of to sort of jump into a slightly more religious or philosophical mode is is what's so extraordinary about religions, with, religious traditions with a with a Sabbath, right? This idea that mm. um, on the on a given day of the week you stop regardless of whether those um, those all those tasks are done in order to spend time on the thing that in those traditions is the most meaningful thing. You don't try to free up time for that. You just take the time for that. Mm. And what you have to learn to do, it's much easier with a socially uh, reinforced tradition like a Sabbath, of course, but what you have to learn to do is not get rid of your anxiety about all the things that haven't been done by getting them done. You have to learn to tolerate your anxiety so that you can leave those things aside for a while and focus on something that you that you really want to do. Um, so I, I think there's something kind of important there, which is that the way I like to express it anyway, is like you, you can't get to sanity and peace of mind with respect to time. You have to do what you can to to start from sanity and peace of mind, which is a question of saying, you know, if this thing really matters to me, I will use whatever autonomy or discretion I have about my time to do it for a bit today or tomorrow, and I will let the other chips fall where they will rather than I'm going to get all those chips taken care of first. Yeah. And it's obviously an easy thing to say and a harder thing to implement and an easier thing for some people to implement than others there's a legitimate objection that comes back to me which is like well you know what if you're going to be fired if you don't just spend your whole day dealing with things that you consider to be nonsense and like well then that's your that's the choice you're in and it's a it's a hard position to be in but the but the fact still remains right we are finite and at some point if you're going to do things that matter. You have to use some moments of the present to do them, regardless of the fact that there are another hundred million mm. things that, you know, on some level you could legitimately be using
0: your time on. That's right. And I, that example of, you know, in the in the Judaic tradition or others to me is very striking. And it's a reminder to me why sometimes these traditions are not just called religious traditions but like wisdom traditions right and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because to me the way you framed that it was almost like there were thousands of years that went into the understanding that psychologically humans are probably like busybodies that are anxious and and that to a certain extent and even though if you're non-religious i mean a lot of people could hear this and be like oh well it's just all about god or, or deism or whatever but to me it's like there was actually some, again, some like core psychological principle saying, no, 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 like at a certain point you do have to stop and we're going to force you to stop. Otherwise, this kind of stream of busyness never really ends, right?
1: Right, absolutely. And by the way, I think religion sort of goes both ways on this. I suppose I'm thinking more of strands of Protestantism that sort yeah. of push back and it suggests that actually your 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 chances of salvation will be based on your productivity and, oh, sure. and hard work but, yeah. but what i love whenever i encounter it in judaism christianity and other uh, traditions is this notion that christians call grace but i you know i don't think it even needs to necessarily be a religiously grounded notion to be of some value which is that like what if you don't need to produce anything in order to have earned your right to exist on the planet what if you could begin each morning sure you've got a to-do list if you want to keep your job if you want to do right by your family absolutely but not with this kind of existential notion that you're not going to be enough as a human being unless you get a certain amount done that's kind of no way to live Mm. and it's a rigged game because as we've been discussing the 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 bar is sort of permanently being raised so that, so that even if you do decide to stake your feelings of enoughness on your productivity, you're, you're never going to reach that, the level that you consider to be enough
0: yeah it, it does make me wonder i mean you you come from the u k originally but lived in the u s for a number of years mm-hmm. and just the the idea of the protestant work ethic right is just so so deeply ingrained in the idea of being an american and I, and I wonder like did you find culturally that there was something unique about the american identity and one's understanding of productivity and time my fear is that like this is one of our bad exports to the rest of the world whatever <laughs> we're doing but but as somebody that was living here kind of as an expat but what did you what did you think
1: it's really interesting and you you rightly suggest i think that this is a kind of an american export and the place that american ideas get exported first is the is the uk so i'm not sure i have all that much mm. uh, sort of distance on this. Um, there are definitely nuances. Um, I think uh, um, Americans or many Americans and many parts of America, people do sort of live with this notion that they are just a certain amount of hard work away from, uh, you know, a, a level of wealth and a level of uh, freedom and success that makes it that, that is going to be the meaning of their lives, and that, and that yeah. motivates them to, to keep on working. I, I know that there are many people for whom it feels hopeless, but I think that having at least some people for whom it feels like it's just over the next uh, horizon uh, is is probably sort of very ideologically powerful in a society, right? To yes. keep that to keep that notion going. Um, British people are slightly more liable. I'm going to half quote. Joseph O'Neill's novel, Netherland, here where he makes this contrast, but uh, British people are slightly more liable to sort of conclude at age 30 or 40 that their life is sort of, it's kind of over now. It's just a sort of <laughs> glide path to retirement uh-huh. or something. And, and um, you know, there are benefits to that, but there's also a kind of, uh, to the extent that it's true, which obviously it's only a broad brush idea, but there's a kind of a, a a lack of ambition in it sometimes. So I've sort of straddled this because I think I am quite an ambitious person. I do want to accomplish certain things with my life um i'm not averse to achieving success um but i think what i've tried to do is is detach that from this notion that therein lies some kind of salvation which i think is part of the sort of part of the way in which america strikes the rest of the world and especially brits as an extremely Religious culture, even among many people who no longer belong to organized
0: faiths. Yeah. And what you said there, sometimes in in psychology, it's a little bit of like we use the term like the arrival fallacy, right? The idea that upon arrival, you will finally arrive into happiness. And that for sure, in the American structure of life, retirement at 65 was always kind of if I can just make it there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll be okay. I'll be happy. And of mm-hmm. course, all the studies now point to that not actually being very true. You get there. And this is, to me, the, the most depressing notion of them all, right? Is that we're so busy doing things to just keep moving and keep our jobs together and our lives together that there is no time to actually cultivate the things that we want to do. So as a result, a lot of people don't know what they want to do right? Like that people could arrive suddenly into an incredible moment of time, but not actually know how to spend that time. And that's kind of, I think a lot of what you hear about in retirement is like people get there and like, oh wait, sitting on the beach is not Mm -hmm. fulfilling me. You know what I mean? And I I wonder how you would make sense of that, right? This idea that, that we're trying to get somewhere, but we don't know actually where that place is or what we'll do when we get there itself.
1: I think that's really, really well observed. I mean, the, the, the part of my writing that it makes me think about is that um, what you do when you spend your life in this instrumentalist mindset, this idea of getting there, is rather than actually getting somewhere, although you may also do that, what you mainly do is you just reinforce the notion that the meaning of life is to be spent in getting somewhere other than uh, than here. You reinforce yeah. the notion that the meaning is in the future. There's a quote that I um that I use actually from from Alan Watts um mm. about how, you know, you go to kindergarten to get ready for elementary school and elementary school to get ready for high school <laughs> and high school to get ready for college and college to get ready for the world of work and and so on and so on. And we get into this this way of being that is so much more powerful than any individual bit of content that it has, right? So so that even if you do get the thing that you currently think now is going to be the the moment of arrival, then you just nominate some some other thing to um be the the moment of of arrival. Um, And it's always off in the future. And I think that part of the appeal of that see what you think about this, but I think that part of the appeal of that is that if the if if the moment of fulfillment is always in the future safely off in the future there's a kind of avoidance of confronting the truth of our finite nature uh, Mm. and of death right because well it's always somewhere um in the future it's like your life is projected infinitely forward into the future and as soon as you realize and take stock of the fact that it that it isn't that at some point it stops well it sort of follows from that 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 you're going to have to, f- at least at some point, start finding meaning in life uh, in the present. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think it's, there's a kind of a, well, actually, John Maynard Keynes called it like a, a, a spurious immortality, right? There's a, there's a way of feeling like you'll go on forever because actually you're always postponing uh,
0: the moment of truth. My guest this hour is Oliver Berkman, and we're discussing his book 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. We'll be back after this break. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. In the first half of the conversation, we heard author Oliver Berkman reflect philosophically on attitudes towards time throughout history. As we rejoin the conversation, Berkman shares his thoughts and tips on time management and whether greater time efficiency is actually the wisest path. Let's dive back in. After looking at all of these theories understanding how one could use time and i think you acknowledging that maybe you're going about this all in the wrong way like where where do you find yourself landing that feels realistic or hopeful or not hopeful whatever it might be i'm just like kind of kind of keep us uh, moving along your journey into what felt like you know a place that you wanted to be i mean the
1: first thing to to say about that is that i think a big a big change for me was sort of accepting that this is a constant work in progress, right mm. giving up the notion that there is one way of organizing life or relating to time that is going to feel like okay, now it's the only one i I need for the rest of my for the rest of my life um, that said, I mean I think that one of the most important changes that i have made. I made some sort of external, some sort of circumstance changes. Right, we moved from a urban centre to a rural area, and I could talk about why I think that was the right thing for our family at this point. But but it's also just this willingness to feel a little bit of discomfort in 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 the process of transformation. Right, it, if you decide to uh, leave off a few responsibilities that you've previously been very good at in order to focus more on something else it's going to feel like bad at least Mm. on some level if you decide to rest if you want to if you know if you decide to spend a couple of hours reading a novel when you have in fact got a huge to-do list around the house weighing you down Set aside whether you can truly afford to or not, that is circumstance dependent, but like, it's not going to feel good. The first few pages of reading that novel are not going to feel pleasant because your mind is completely conditioned for the opposite and you're sort of pushing back against that that force. So for me, a big part of this has been just a, a willingness to feel a little bit of discomfort, the discomfort of focusing on on what it is that I'm doing or the person that I'm with um, and to learn that actually on the other side of that is is a level of sort of absorption and meaning and experience that I I did not know so well before.
0: What about going back to that the kind of philosophical idea you talked about earlier which is that you know if we recognize the finite nature of time and life itself that means we can't do everything we can't we can't chase every, every interest or passion or, or I mean maybe some people can see every place but but that there has to be a certain amount of decision-making. And with that, I think, can come regret or grief or whatever, that, that we have to be, you know, very certain and forceful with the decisions we make and move in a direction that feels right. Like, how, how do you sit with that stuff now? It's
1: interesting. I mean, I don't know if this is quite an answer to your question, so, so tell me if it isn't. But for me, there's always this movement that I find very liberating, which is towards seeing how totally non-negotiable this condition of finitude really is so it's Mm. actually like once you really see that getting everything done is not really difficult but in fact impossible once you finally see that controlling the future is not really really hard but in fact impossible once you sort of crash to the ground in that respect that's when the energy and the focus and the, and the happiness really can sort of emerge, because that's when you, you really um, find the, the, the sort of ability to pour your time and attention into a few things that count, because you're no longer deluded, really, into thinking that there's another way, that there's a way of working so hard and finding so much self-discipline that you can get on top of it all. So it's a kind of disillusionment, really. But of a very positive variety. That that to me is is what's important here. And you mentioned um Zen briefly earlier in the conversation. I find that this is something that is incredibly well expressed again and again by by Zen writers that our problem is thinking there's some kind of solution <laughs> oh. to the human situation. Uh-huh. Uh and when you can let go of that, the human situation itself, most of the time, is is not so terrible after all.
0: Mm. I wonder this, and if if this even relates to our conversation, but about in in terms of one's use of time, like, you know, there's this notion that there's always another thing to explore or see, or there's the notion that one can, like, really refine the things that they love or are good at. Maybe it's two or three things. And it's interesting, like, again, maybe thinking of of Zen or Japanese culture and ideas of, of ikigai or things of that, which would say, like, really... With your time, become great at something. Do it correctly. Like, understand the nuance and the beauty and the complexity of something. And I kind of wish that was me, but I, I'm a total generalist with my head spinning in a thousand directions. But, like, <laughs> for you, what do you think about those arguments, knowing that that time is so finite and the way that we get to spend it in the ways that we love? Um, well, I, I don't think th- – I mean, that's it's deeply true and wise, but
1: I don't think it follows, to me, that you have to sort of – focus very much on on one set of things or one activity or craft I certainly think of myself as a generalist I suppose I'm a non-generalist only in the sense that writing is the 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 one thing that I feel like I I really do but I I'm not very narrow in my in my writing about and what I write about and to me it's like it's it's the question of entering into the single moment that you're in, right? And that Mm. could be, that can actually be not only a, a life of many different things, but it could be quite a busy life. It could be quite a fast moving life. I don't think that the association of Eastern spirituality with passivity is necessarily fair at all. I think you can, it's at least theoretically possible to be working a very, very fast paced, extremely quote, busy in some sense, life and to do it in a way that is not rushed that is not scattered that is not failing to value the present moment because it is fixated only on the future
0: ones. Mm. Well for all of us that you know feel like we are in the, the you know the throes of American capitalism and 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 how that seems to direct our sense of time I mean what you know what what would you say in terms of of the pressure of of filling days with too much stuff or this idea of bucket listing where we have to get through the 20 things we've always loved to do or we failed at that. How do we square this with kind of the world we we live in now?
1: It's a really good question. I mean, I, in the book I do at the end, especially sort of list a bunch of sort of specific techniques that are, are productivity techniques, really, ultimately, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I think are compatible with this kind of uh, outlook. Um, I think that the really important thing is that, Yes. I I wanted to, when I was writing this book, I wanted to be very clear that I wasn't suggesting that um, you could just sort of ignore the circumstances in which we live and the economic system in which we live. But I think you can, to get a bit existentialist about it, I think you can sort of internally secede from that, right? So you can't necessarily quit your job uh, and totally change your external circumstances, although you may have more Uh, capacity for doing that than you realize but certainly lots of people can't. Um, What you can do is kind of not buy in to the idea that more and more efficiency and processing more and more tasks is the path to happiness. Maybe you still have to answer a frankly absurd number of emails uh, in the day in order to keep your on side. Maybe you do still have to find ways to fit more and more in. But if you're not thinking to yourself once I finally manage to fit more and more in then comes happiness mm. that I think can enable you to find more happiness and joy and meaning in the, the moments of your actual life now because you're not sort of buying into it. So I don't think we have to buy in to the values of the system in which we live,
0: even if a lot of people don't have the option of just checking out of it entirely. Mm. You also, I think, talked about something, don't, don't you have something like a, a completed list, not a to-do list? I mean, just there's a few simple, really interesting things that you've written about.
1: Yeah, this is one of the techniques that I write about, actually, just this idea of a done list. I think it's so, um, it's weirdly helpful to, you know, not only focus on all the things that you have yet to do, but to take a moment uh, to record the things that you that you do do just so that you can sort of begin to change that default setting from you know waking up in the morning and thinking unless I do a 100 things I'm not a worthy person to seeing like oh well actually I've, I've done all these things that would not have got done if I just stayed in bed today so um, it's very easy to forget about the things that you've done once they're done and to focus only on all the things left to do but there's an infinite number of things left to do so i think it's really useful to start focusing on that, some of the ones you've done as well and that yeah just keep a list that you add to as you complete things through the day see what happens
0: any other small ones as we kind of begin to wrap up here just little little things that you have found helpful or that you are still instituting
1: one thing that i've found very useful in one form or another is to pursue what i call a fixed volume approach to work mm. um I'm riffing slightly on Cal Newport's idea of a fixed schedule approach to work. This is the idea that to whatever extent your professional situation allows, you you sort of, you start first by thinking, okay, how much time is there available today? for How much time am I willing to give uh, to work or to certain kinds of work perhaps? And then given that, given that fixed amount, what are the most important priorities to put into that container? As opposed to what I think we naturally do if we don't have a system like this, which is uh, that we get up in the morning and think about or make a list of all the things that we think have to be done that Mm. day. But have to be done is kind of meaningless, and it's probably going to be much longer than there's any possibility of, of getting done. If you can create those kind of hard edges in any way at all, uh then you know one popular one is you know if you can if you can fix a time when you when you leave the office and not everyone can but if you can then everything else sort of um adjusts uh to to um comply with that with that boundary and you'll find yourself more naturally um making the tough decisions that in some sense you were going to make anyway right because mm-hmm. you were not going to do an infinite amount with your day but making them consciously rather than Uh, having them having them made
0: for you. I've always noticed this with vacations, like, you know, negotiating with a partner or work, like I would be, it'd be impossible for me to put two weeks somewhere here. It's impossible to do this. But isn't it incredible? Like, once you actually just book a flight somewhere and just put something that is immovable into a calendar, how life naturally seems to kind of morph (laughs) around it in a way that was so much easier than we anticipated. It's like, Which, to me, is almost laughable to think we think we're so important that we can't actually do stuff like this, you know? Um, But but (laughs) you you get my point, I take it. Right. If it's fixed, or you've convinced yourself that it's fixed, um,
1: then yeah life finds a way um and uh it's it's really interesting so um yeah, I think if you can sort of put uh stakes in the ground like that, and you know if you're worried that you can't do that or that you might need to change them or that someone might get mad, right, you can always course correct but uh just to sort of just to sort of make some put some boundaries in, especially since we lost a lot of temporal boundaries in our lives, I think it's a experience of the of the pandemic,
0: yeah. Well, I wonder if there's just any final thoughts you would leave us with or things that you have been reflecting on since this book has come out or people, or things that people have said to you. I, I think this is such an important conversation for so many people in terms of how we think about time.
1: I suppose one thing that comes back again and again is that those who have found the insights in this book to be useful sometimes get worried about like, you know, how do I make them stick? How do I always relate? In this more peaceful, saner way to time, uh, without ever having to, you know, replenish it. And, and my answer is always, <laughs> it beats me if I know, uh-huh. because this is this is kind of deep stuff, and it is, uh, and we are extremely deeply wired to do the the opposite. And it's a really a matter of sort of embodying a different approach to time. So I think it is really just a question of over and over again choosing uh potentially uncomfortable making potentially uncomfortable decisions about what to do with your time in the direction of the things that you care about um reminding yourself that there will always be uh too much to do and therefore um trying to get it all done is a is a is an unwise investment of your time and energy and just sort of seeing that most of the Most of the freedom of this perspective just comes from understanding how we're all in the same boat. There's no way out of the human condition. And, you know, you, to the extent that you can, you should not feel morally obliged to do more things than you can actually do, because that makes no sense. And uh, you don't have to do. I am here to tell you that you don't have to do more things than you, in fact, can do.
0: Yes. Do you think it is possible to kind of slow time down to to, to make it feel like the 4,000 weeks is not just rushing by?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's lots of people suggest sort of doing lots of new things as a way to make it feel like time is going slower. But I think that any of what we've been talking about here, Mm. that involves paying more attention to the things you're actually doing, that involves easing up a bit on the notion of trying to rush through the present moment to get it out of the way to get things done in order to get to the future any move you make against that is going to bring you more into the present moment you're going to take in more data from your experience and surroundings and all the research suggests that that's the way to counter that horrible feeling of um uh you know of of time speeding up and Mm. up and up as we uh,
0: as, as we get older. It's been so wonderful to be joined by Oliver Berkman. He's the author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Oliver, what a, what a fun and interesting conversation. I really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it greatly. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. There's a lot of ways to stay connected to the show throughout the week. Many of you have perhaps noticed the Midweek Reset, which drops Wednesday morning into your podcast feed. It's a way for us to distill down one important idea to integrate into your week. Again, that's the Midweek Reset. You can find that in your podcast feed. You can find us on Facebook, where you can continue the conversation with other listeners. A link to that is at kcrw.com slash examined, And you can also connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. There you'll also find weekly videos as well, where again, we try to bring you the best of the best in a shorter, more shareable form. Thanks again for joining us on Life Examined here on your public radio station, KCRW. Take care. We'll see you next week.